2: I'm Melissa Lee and today for Kelly Evans, we are entering the final 60 minute countdown to the Fed's next decision on interest rates. A hike is expected today, but where we go from here, that is less certain. We've got team coverage from the stock market to the bond market to the economy and how rising rates impact the consumer. Plus, billionaire real estate investor Don Peebles is back with an update on the health of commercial real estate. A month ago, remember, he told us about opportunities he was ready to pull the trigger on this quarter. He did, and he's back to tell us what he bought and what he's eyeing next. Fresh off the UPS deal, averting a costly and disruptive strike, Teamsters General President Sean O'Brien will join us live. That is all ahead. This as a Dow is struggling to make it 13 straight days of wins, which would be the longest winning streak since 1987. And that is where we begin with the markets. And Dom Chu over at the Telestrator. Hey, Dom.
3: There's part of me, Melissa, that really hopes the Fed and whatever it does gets the Dow to that 14-day, right? Because if it gets to 14 I'm already looking beyond that. It would be the first time since 1897 since that's happened. Anyway, the Dow Industrials, the S&P and the Nasdaq are all in that typical holding pattern, as you might expect, ahead of a big Fed rate decision and a subsequent press conference by Fed chair Jay Powell. The Dow Industrials just about flat on the session, up about five points. 3335443. The S&P is at 45,55, down about 12 points, one quarter of 1%. It's been a down day generally at the highs of the session. We were still down two points in the S&P and down 15 at the low. So tilting towards the lower end of that trading range so far. And the NASDAQ composite underperforming down one half of 1%, 69 points to the downside, 14,075. More on why that's happening in just a moment here. But let's give you the state of play on interest rates because it is a Fed rate day. So let's check out the yield curve from some of the shorter maturity government bonds. To the longer ones the two-year note yield ticking slightly higher to 4.91 percent, or just below that level the 10-year benchmark note yield just a hair below 3.9 percent, moving a slight tick to the downside and that difference between the 10-year and the two-year government bond expanding a bit now about a full percentage point a little bit more kind of inverted so to speak so watch that dynamic plays out as we head towards that fed rate decision And then I was speaking about the tech trade, a tale of two tech giants today. We're talking Alphabet, the parent company of Google, Microsoft moving in opposite directions. Both companies reported better than expected quarterly profits and revenues. But Melissa, it often comes down to those growth areas. In this case here, it was cloud computing, where growth at Alphabet's cloud computing was getting better. Microsoft cloud computing may be slowing down just a little bit. That's the reason why the divergence is there. And by the way, Melissa, both conference calls for both companies mentioned what else? Artificial intelligence a number of times. I'll send things back over to you.
2: Yep. Dom, thanks. Dom Chu. Less than an hour until the Fed's decision on interest rates. Steve Leisman's at the Federal Reserve with What to Watch. Emily Rowland is co-chief investment strategist at John Hancock Investment Management. Subhadra Rajapa, head of U.S. rate strategy at Societe Generale. And Mark Zandi, chief economist at Moody's Analytics. But, Steve, we've got to kick it off with you. Set the scene
4: for us.
5: Yeah, thanks, Melissa. With a quarter point hike, expected to focus at the meeting. It will be on the guidance that will come in the press conference and whether the statement itself gives the dovish guidance from May or the hawkish guidance from June. Let me remind you what each said. In May, the statement said, quote, in determining the extent to which additional policy firming may be appropriate. That signal the Fed was not decided on whether to hike and set up a pause. Then in June, the most recent statement, it wrote, in determining the extent of additional policy firming, that may be appropriate, signaling the Fed had pretty much decided to hike, just not sure how much or when. Santander economist Stephen Stanley, he believes the Fed is in the mode of hiking every other meeting, so we'll go back to something resembling that dovish May language. He wrote, quote, if I am right and the FOMC intention is to wait until early November and then either tighten again or not depending on how the economy evolves and the committee will want to keep its options open this week, the market has its options open, trading with a 100% probability rate hike today but only a 20 percent chance of rate hike in September. And then in that every other meeting mode, she's a 43 percent probability the Fed gets back to hiking in November. That's elevated in recent days, but still not a done deal yet. Forecasters, well, they keep predicting the economy and the job market will weaken, but the data keep defying those predictions. That's why the Fed and Chair Jay Powell will likely hike today and keep the possibility very much alive. Melissa, the Fed is not done yet.
2: Yeah, I saw that graphic that you had. I think it was in the last hour, Steve, about what has happened since the June meeting in terms of inflation coming down, the job market remaining strong, yep. expectations for GDP, yep. particularly in the second half going higher. At the same time, though, in the second half, we've got, uh, you know, the base effects starting to go away. So the inflation picture might be a little bit uh, more cloudy uh, when it comes to the data that the Fed will, will have by the September, by the November meetings.
5: I think that's a really good observation, Melissa. I, th- I think the Fed is done thinking that the trajectory of inflation either up or down is a straight line. I think it got into that. It got a little burned by that idea uh, back at the beginning of this year. You remember we had a couple good inflation reports. Not only did the, uh, did the were subsequent reports bad, but they went back and revised the ones that looked like they were good. So I think that's exactly the approach that, that Powell is going to take here. He's going to be cautious about this one percentage point decline in inflation and say, yeah, it probably will keep going. It may keep going but I'm not going to really change policy that dramatically until I'm sure that's where it's going.
2: Steve, thanks. Steve Leisman, let's get to our panel now. Start off with Emily Rowland with what the market is looking for from the Fed today. Emily, what is your base case? I mean, everybody's base case is a 25 basis point hike. But in terms of the messaging, it almost seems like it is in the Fed's interest to send out a very hawkish message to say, you know what? Everything is still on the table.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The Fed's probably going to need to be the adult in the room today and warn market participants that if inflationary pressures do continue to bounce around and maybe pick up uh, here based on those base effects kind of moving the other way over the next few months, there is the chance that more hikes are on the table here. There has certainly been, as Steve pointed out, some welcome news for the Fed as it relates to inflationary pressures subsiding. You know, you look, you see it everywhere from used car prices falling from the prices paid components of the business surveys that we look at falling up, uh, but the labor market still remains tight. Look at initial jobless claims. They looked like they were perking up a little bit. Now we're back down to the lower end of the range that we've been in since early February. So tough job for the Fed today. I wish we were getting a dot spot. I think it would be all over the place. Uh, it would be interesting to note the lack of consent on
2: the Fed. Yeah, particularly coming from a meeting where there was, you know, complete consensus in yeah. terms of the de- decision there. Um, Mark, Emily had mentioned what has come down in price, but what has gone up in price, oil up 14 percent just since the June meeting. We also have grains going higher on Russia pulling out of the Black Sea initiative, really proving that commodity inflation is, is sticky. It's, it's something that the Fed has no control over. How does that all factor in, you think, in the Fed's messaging today? Well, not much, mm-hmm. uh, you know. I,
6: I think uh, you know underlying inflation, core inflation, excluding you know the volatile commodity prices that you mentioned, is uh, trending lower. It's, as Steve said, it's not a straight line. It's going up, it's going down, and all around. But the trend lines are all pretty good. And uh, you know, it's always hard to forecast, uh, inflate, forecast anything. But forecasting inflation is particularly difficult. But I think we can stay with a high degree of confidence. It's going to continue to moderate. We we know that vehicle prices are going to come in. There's a lot more production happening overseas, and used in new vehicle prices have rolled over. And we know with a high degree of confidence that the uh, growth in the cost of housing services is going to slow. That's tied into rents, and rents have gone flat to down since the end of last year. So I think it's becoming increasingly clear inflation is, you know, headed in the right direction. It may take a while to get back to the Fed's target. I think the Fed's going to remain, you know, strident in, in its language as a result. But, you know, I think they're going to get what they want and won't need to raise rates after raising them today.
2: Strident, uh, meaning hawkish, Mark.
6: <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, look, if I were them, no matter
2: what was going on, I'd be,
6: I'd talk tough, right? Yeah. Because you want to keep inflation expect- expectations down, down to that 2%, because if you do, it just makes it easier to get actual inflation back in. So, you know, they have every incentive to, to talk uh, stridently, uh, hawkishly, but you know, at the end of the day, I think the numbers suggest that they won't need to raise rates after they raise them today.
2: badger what's, what's the base case scenario in terms of what happens today in the rates market? You know, what's interesting, I was just taking a look at what's happened since the June meeting in the various asset classes. Uh, the 10-year yield has gone up 10 basis points. The two-year yield has gone up 40 basis points. So what are you expecting here?
7: I think the Fed is going to raise rates by 25 basis points, but then retain a hawkish stance. Mm as Mark pointed out, I mean, inflation is, is coming down, but only gradually. And what we've seen in the last few weeks is a sharp rise in inflation expectations. The five-year forward, five-year break-even that the Fed looks at very closely has gone from two, two and a quarter percent around closer to two and a half percent. So the rise in yields, the nominal yields that we've seen over the the past couple of weeks has mostly come in, come because of higher inflation expectations. That's something the Fed is is concerned about. The market is starting to price in, um, you know, uh, Fed policy that's higher for longer. uh, And also what Higher uh, inflation expectations means is that the Fed is going to, to keep uh, a hawkish stance, perhaps for a lot longer than what the market's expecting. The market's now pricing in cuts for 2024. Uh, higher for longer would mean that, that those cuts might have to get pushed out uh, further uh, into into uh, the
2: later half of of 2024. Mm-hmm. And and how do equity markets view that, Emily? And we were talking about Fed funds futures in terms of the expectations, but equity markets in their heart of hearts, are they thinking that there are actually going to be some cuts here? Because, I mean, look at where we are priced in terms of valuation on a historical basis. I mean, the S&P 500 is at the very top end, if not higher than the historical average here on forward um, numbers. So how do we set up here?
0: Yeah, so equity markets have been basically celebrating every whiff of disinflation mm-hmm. that the three of us have been talking about here. And you're seeing that all reflected in in the multiple. If you look at the 20 percent return so far this year on the S&P 500, most of it's coming from multiple expansions. In fact, even though earnings have come in better than expected so far this quarter, you're actually seeing analysts telling you not to get too excited. Uh, they're actually lowering their earnings estimates to, for 2023 to about flat. So to tie this all together what we think is going to happen is that companies are going to start to have to contend with margin pressure. So as inflation comes down that hurts top line growth and meanwhile you have the cost of capital basically doubled over a 12 month basis. So that's going to cause companies to need to defend their margins. A company who's defending their margins they've got to cut costs and what's the biggest cost most companies have labor that's when you see the unemployment rate rise and that's when you probably start to see some more volatility across markets. We're not there yet, but that's where we think we're going.
2: Yeah, Mark, what do you think the Fed's messaging will be in terms of, uh, you know, raising rates at what cost, to what cost? I mean, costs, particularly for the labor market. We're gonna be talking to the UPS president later on this hour about a big win that they, they had. It's a great win for workers, but for UPS, it is a headwind, according to most analysts, to their earnings for this year and going forward. Um, how does that factor in?
6: Well, you know, I, I think uh, the Fed does not need to raise rates to push the economy into recession to get inflation back in. I mean, inflation's coming back in with an unemployment rate that's at 3.6 percent. and It's been there for over a year. The so-called sacrifice ratio, you know, the, the amount of uh, increase in unemployment we need to get inflation in at this point it seems very low. And I think that will continue. So I don't know that the Fed needs to Keep pushing here and push the economy uh, into recession or close to recession to get inflation back in, into target. Here, here's the other thing. Melissa, I'll just point out. You know, I think if you asked uh, Fed officials today what target they would have for inflation, you know, it, privately, they they would probably say they uh, not two. Uh, that's too low. They mm-hmm. probably say something closer to three. So you know, at the end of the day, why sacrifice the economy? To the altar of a two percent inflation rate, when you really think it should be three percent inflation. So I, I I don't think they're going to continue to push here uh, strongly because they they don't need to.
2: So you think they're gonna they're gonna give up that two percent inflation target narrative because they just stuck by it at Sintra? No,
6: no, no, no. They're not going to give up the narrative. They're going to stick to that. You know, again, stridently hawkishly uh-huh. because then it makes it easier to get inflation back in. But you know, uh, do you when it comes push comes to shove? Right. If you're making a choice between do I push the economy into recession when the inflation rate's three and uh, I and my target, is, my official target is two, the answer is probably not because they, you know, deep down, you know, in the heart of hearts, I mean, why two? You know, is that that's not the right number, particularly in the in the context of the current economy.
2: So we're trying to peer into the hearts of of the Fed officials and well, see what they really want to believe at this point. I know. I mean, we. <laughs> <laughs> We're dissecting every little bit, every single twitch, every single scratch. Exactly. I mean, I mean everything. But Supadra, yeah. I mean, if they did back down from two percent, which they have so publicly and just very recently stood by, and I know that this is all in heart of hearts, and this is maybe internally what Fed officials want, but at some point, don't they have to say and start? getting that message out even a little bit? And no. Maybe, maybe, no, they don't. Don't no. they I mean don't they, they, say,
6: they keep saying two, they keep saying two, they keep saying two, but I mean, they don't, that doesn't mean they need to push the economy into the recession. Here, here's the other thing, Melissa. Look, we got an election coming up. I mean, do you really, does the Fed really want to push the economy the into- The Fed is not political, Mark. Come okay. on. Okay, come on. Now, come on now, I, Melissa, I say that on. a little Think about sarcastic. that for a second. I mean, they don't want to get politicized. And if they're mm-hmm. pushing the economy into recession in the middle of a presidential election- and you're not going to get politicized by that? I mean, so I, I don't know. I mean, I All think right. yeah, everything seems to point to me that th- this is the end of the story. You know, you raise rates this, this today because everyone expects it. And then you, you hang tough and I, I'm sh- uh, the data is going to co- cooperate. And if it, if it doesn't exactly, you, you bide your time.
2: Right, right. Um, So in that, I mean, Subhaja, I don't know if you believe the political cycle factors into what the Fed does. It also has another sort of midway step with the Jackson Hole meeting where they could start to massage the message a little bit. And I'm wondering, um, you know, if you see any sort of changes happening then.
7: So I think we get two employment reports Mm -hmm. and, and two inflation reports before the September meeting and the Jackson Hole meeting. So we should have plenty of information by the time the September meeting rolls in whether the fed is going to hike in September or are they going to skip and then keep policy on hold perhaps for the remainder of of the year but you know to the to to your question about whether they should change the target the proof is in the pudding if you look at the summary of economic projections the fed in their own forecast don't expect inflation to get to below 2% or at 2% even into 2025. So their own forecast suggests that the decline in inflation after we get to 3% perhaps is going to be very gradual and it'll probably take a lot longer for inflation to get back down towards the 2% target. So in that sort of context for the most part, uh, you know, curves might remain a lot uh, inverted for a lot longer and the Fed might have to keep the front end pegged for a lot longer than the market
2: expects. All right. Thank you all for all your thoughts. Pre-Fed, Emily Rowland, Subhadra Rajapa, and Mark Zandi. And do not miss Double Line CEO Jeff Gunlock on Closing Bell today for his first reaction to the Fed decision. That's, of course, 3 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, real estate mogul Don Peebles seeks a trillion-dollar risk to the commercial real estate market. But there are some buying opportunities, he says. He will join us on set next to explain. Plus, a landmark labor deal worth $30 billion, according to the Teamsters. We'll ask the union's general president about the agreement and what it means for Workers across the country. And as we head to break, let's get a quick check in on the markets. Pretty quiet ahead of the Fed, but a lot can change in uh, under 60 minutes' time. Stay tuned. You're watching The Exchange.
8: Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. Next don't give it to you. How about that? That's a premium Bangin' Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience.
1: Acura. And
8: that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Let's go give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all electric CDX Type S. Give up. Order now at Acura.com.
1: What's on the horizon for financial markets?
2: The Fed widely expected to resume rate hikes today, and my next guest says that, that will put even more pressure on an already beleaguered commercial real estate market. He sees a number of distressed CRE assets swelling to $1 trillion by 2025 if nothing is done to alleviate the stress. But he also says that with pain comes opportunity. For more on what he is seeing and buying, let's bring it down, Peebles, CEO and Chairman of the Peebles Corporation, with properties in multiple markets, including New York, Miami, San Francisco, and many, many more. Too many to mention. Don, it's always good to see you. Uh, in the last time you were on the exchange was the end of June. And just taking a look in terms of barometers of sentiment, I like to take a look at the, you know, publicly traded REITs. We've seen a real rebound. It does seem like there's a change in sentiment when it comes to the commercial real estate market. You're seeing that as well?
9: I think a little bit. I think mm-hmm. that people are being a bit more optimistic. I mean, look, the, the REIT stocks for New York office buildings had been, I mean, they've been down uh, significantly. Right. And so now they're having a little bit of an inch back up and, because I think people are sensing that the financial sector is requiring people to come back to work. And so workers are going back. And so there's optimism that these buildings won't be as vacant. Yeah. But there's still um, an understanding that there's going to be significant vacancies and there are going to be significant defaults and uh, properties being given back to the lenders.
2: Yeah, some of these reasons, you know, I was looking at Vernito up 28 percent in the past month. Boston Properties up 14 percent in one month. You're, we are just talking during the break about a loan. You've actually gotten, you're, you're going forward with the development and you got a loan.
9: Yes. I mean we're excited. <laughs> it's happening. We, we, yeah, we well we're every market's not affected the same. Mm -hmm. Some markets are doing very well. Charlotte, North Carolina is one where we're closing on a loan to commence site work for a new development of six buildings. And we'll start with two buildings that will be both residential apartment buildings, but is a strong market for it. And private credit is stepping in and they are providing financing for, you know, worthwhile projects. We had a competitive environment um, for financing for this project.
2: And you got this from uh, private credit, which it's, I mean, that's all the rage nowadays. With especially with regional banks pulling back on their lending. In other times, would that would you have gone to uh, a regional bank or a local lender for that loan, or would you have always gone to private credit?
9: No, we would have had a more robust. Uh, competitive environment. Mm. So the competitors in this process for this loan were all private credit. In the past, it would have been a mixture of a, of a national global bank, a, a couple regionals and one or two um, private credit um, lenders. And, and but we have done deals previously with private credit. But by and large, the bulk of them have been with global or, or regional banks.
2: And of course, with private credit, the cost to borrow is higher Um, than it has been with other lenders and, and than it has been in the past in general. And so I'm wondering, you know, how does that change how you view the feasibility of a project? I would imagine other things have to fall into place in order for that higher loan payment to make sense.
9: Yeah. Look, the pricing difference isn't as extreme as people would look at it, because if you look at a senior loan from a a, a bank, then they're levering up to 60 percent. Private credit would take you up to 80. So you would eliminate a mes tranche Mm -hmm. that would move the blended rate up anyway. But what's happening is in places like South Florida and other new development markets. Uh, the cost of capital, along with other factors like, in say, South Florida, of insurance, for example, and labor cost, um, it's making projects infeasible, um, and so these increases in interest rates have sidelined developers around the nation.
2: Right. Um, the Fed may hike today, and this very well may be the last. But it does seem like the rates will remain higher for longer. Right. That's that's the new thinking. And so, what does that tell you about uh, the development in certain markets? Right now, you're saying. Expensive places like oh, Miami and New York, like it's going to be very hard to do new projects. If rates stay higher for longer, does that environment stay? Do we not see as many new developments for that amount of time?
9: Well, I think we'll see fewer developments Mm -hmm. if rates stay up and if the Fed raises rates again a quarter of a a basis point, then that'll just slow things down even further. But ultimately, we're going to adjust. I mean, I did business when I started our company in the 80s and real interest rates were 9 percent, 10 percent, and those were considered very attractive. Real estate was appreciating about 10 percent a year right along with interest rates. And so we operated in that environment. I think there will be a adjustment and consumers will have to pay the price for it because prices will go up. Rents are going to go up and already have in many cities. Um, and and prices of condos and new construction of homes will go up.
2: You have the benefit of having that experience. Some other developers do not. Uh, is there going to be a major shakeout in terms of you're going to be able to pick up the pieces from developers who just weren't able to handle this business cycle?
9: Yes, because I think that many developers, I mean, look, development's an optimistic business to begin with, so we've (laughs) gotta be dreamers and optimists, right? But having the experience of starting my career in the 1980s, seeing banks close, a thousand banks close in a period of three years, gave me a different perspective. So I know the music does stop at times, and I think there are going to be tremendous opportunities at the, you know, at the expense of other developers who've overextended themselves.
2: Um, are there markets out there whose demise are greatly exaggerated? San Francisco is is one that I'm thinking of. I mean, for for all the reports that we have that people are pulling out of San Francisco, we also have all the hype of the AI boom, which may be providing new tenants coming into the city.
9: Well, in general, in real estate, things have to get bad before they get better, and they have to get really bad before they get better. I believe San Francisco will be one of the first markets to come out, one of the hard-hit markets uh, that will come out of this because it's been so bad for so long, and I think San Francisco's, in a position to rebound and we're beginning to look at that market it is a target market for us to buy existing office buildings to convert them into residential and hospitality so i like san francisco's future because i believe it will continue to be the financial capital of the West. It will be the tech center of the United States that will continue to do both of those things, just like New York City will ultimately be the, continue to be the epicenter uh, for finance in the world. This will be the headquarters of the global market indefinitely. And so ultimately it will come back. And the thing about real estate is you want to buy when fewer people are buying, yeah. sell when fewer people are selling. And when everybody's running out, you don't run out. You look to go inside and pick up the pieces. And that's what we're going to be doing. All
2: right, Don, it's uh, always a pleasure to get your take. You're going to stick around, and we're going to talk to you a little bit more a little bit later on. Don Peoples. Up next, we'll speak with the Teamsters. General President Sean O'Brien will weigh in on the union's tentative labor deal with UPS and the next steps to ratify the agreement. You've got 33 minutes until the Fed decision. The exchange is back right after this.
8: Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. Next give it to you. How about that? That's a premium Bangin' Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience.
1: Acura. And
8: that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Let's go give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric CDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.
2: Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of UPS shares fractionally lower after reaching a tentative contract deal with the Teamsters yesterday. The union says it gained $30 billion in what they're calling new money, while UPS says it cannot discuss details until it reports earnings. For more, we're joined by Morgan Brennan, along with the Teamsters General President Sean O'Brien. Morgan, kick things off, please.
4: Thanks, Melissa. And uh, President O'Brien, Sean O'Brien, it's great to have you on the air. Uh, Thanks for joining us. I just want to start with the fact that you and I last spoke a a little over two weeks ago, and at the time there was an impasse in negotiations. Flash forward, come back to the table yesterday to negotiate. Deal struck yesterday. Uh, I guess just walk us through some of the color and and, and some of the dynamics that took place to finally see this deal uh, come to fruition and come to fruition finally so quickly.
1: Well, I think what happened was, you know, there was a lot of pressure being put on UPS from uh, the investors. There was a lot of pressure being put uh, on UPS by their customers. And we were putting a lot of pressure on UPS uh, by demonstrating our solidarity. And I think we proved not only UPS, but corporate America and everybody else that labor can be a market changer. And I think UPS finally realized that it needed to reward the members that made them tremendous success and helped them earn $100 billion
4: yeah 100 billion dollars in revenue last year um full and part-time workers get raises 275 more per hour basically effective immediately in 2023 uh, once this gets ratified you got rid of this two-tier worker system uh, another paid holiday ends the mandatory overtime air conditioning and new vehicles here 30 billion dollars in new money is what you're saying ups is not commenting on the total and. I think the expectation is we're not going to get a comment if we do get a comment until earnings August 8th. How do you get to that number?
1: Well, we get to our number because we cost it out. We have economists that, uh, similar to UPS, they cost out what the agreement is. We know what the economics were. And just for the record, part timers on average will receive a 44% wage increase over the lifetime of this agreement, uh, which is tremendous. I mean, it takes people out of poverty wages. Uh, it's gonna change a lot of lives for families. Full-timers will get a $7.50 wage increase uh, over the lifetime of this agreement, as they as they, as both part-timers and full-timers deserve. I mean, think about what they provided to this country during the pandemic. CEOs, uh, investors were getting rewarded with record uh, dividends and, and bonuses, and they never touched the package. And our members finally Uh, stood up and got what they deserved.
4: Voting begins August 3rd. It ends August 22nd. Is there any risk here that of 340,000 Teamster members at UPS that this doesn't actually get voted through?
1: Well, the one thing, we, we would never accept an agreement um, <clears throat> unless we believed in it, and we believed this was as far as we could go. The Last contract uh, with concessions under the previous administration was a $13 billion deal. This we reversed all the concessions, and we got a $30 billion deal. We are going to endorse it and fully support it and encourage our members to vote for it.
2: Sean, you mentioned—this is Melissa Lee—you mentioned your economists on staff there. What did your economists see? Um, in terms of the economy overall and the long and lagged effects of the feds interest rate hikes we're talking about a fed meeting it's going to happen today they're going to raise rates once again Um, a lot of analysts on wall street are concerned about the impact of this deal to ups earnings stiefel has a note out today saying an incremental of 4.5 percent above costs that were modeled they say quote unquote unequivocally a headwind to earnings i understand this is a big win for the everyday rank and file at UPS, but how do you sort of weigh your gains with the cost pressures that UPS may face?
1: Well, I think, look, one thing's for certain is that everybody's concerned about the economy, everybody's concerned about interest rates, but, you know, and that's all relative to what goes on in Wall Street. We're concerned about Main Street. We understand that there could be tough times ahead, But like anything else, when recessions hit, we eventually come out of recessions. We couldn't wait on projections and hopes and promises that it would get better. We had to capitalize now on what was in the best interest of our members. And UPS is very, very smart. Uh, They're a successful company, and I'm sure they'll be able to navigate through uh, whatever challenges they have financially supporting this agreement.
4: They averted a strike at Yellow as well, which is the third biggest U.S. trucking company that specializes in LTL. Uh, shipments on on Sunday or I guess on Monday as well. So whether it's UPS or whether it's yellow uh, just before it, how does this speak to a broader playbook in terms of key requests or demands that you're hearing from union members and prospective union members that they want uh, across companies and across industries right now?
1: Well, you know we've got to we've got to look at every situation differently. UPS very successful, had 100 million dollars earnings. Yellow has been struggling since 2009. Our members consistently since 2009, have given concessions back to Yellow. Uh, all in the time where they're getting infusions of cash from private equity in the government. Uh, and our members have hung through, had their pensions cut, and Yellow's had a lot of promises on the table. Look, we don't want to see anybody lose their job, especially 22,000 Teamsters, uh, but you know, Yellow has to be held accountable. You know, This is a perfect example of you know uh, a company that got a lot of money, got a lot of funding, financing, um, and they should have managed it a lot better. You can't blame the workforce. You can't blame the Teamsters. I think at the end of the day, we're, we're all going to try and work together to find a reasonable solution to hopefully uh, get Yellow back on track.
4: Yeah. Now that you've just struck this deal with UPS, though, you and I have talked about this before. Are you setting your sights on Amazon? Is that your next target?
1: We absolutely are setting our sights on Amazon.
4: Okay. What does that look like, and, and how does that, and how do you rally the, the, the workforce there?
1: Well, I think I think using this collective bargaining agreement, we drove up that industry standard that much higher. Um, It will demonstrate to the Amazon workers on what you will get when you work under a collective bargaining agreement. You'll get guaranteed pay increases, you'll get pensions, you'll get opportunities for full-time jobs, but more importantly, you get dignity and respect, and you'll get an appreciation and have a voice to fight every time uh, you need a a new contract.
4: All right. Uh, Sean O'Brien, General President of the Teamsters, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. Melissa.
2: Morgan, thank you. People's Corporation chairman, CEO Don Peebles is still with us. Um, Don, this is not uh, the only successful strike. We've had uh, labor being very active across the country, unions being very active, exacting pay increases, et cetera. It is the year of the worker. Uh, how does that impact what you do? Because the costs are increasing for businesses across the board.
9: Well, I think, first of all, I mean, I think we do need to have a more equitable mm-hmm. society. Um, we have a a massive wealth disparity and so i think that people who are especially on the front lines like the teamsters who helped save the economy because what would we have done without delivery and without being able to do online but so did amazon and so did these other companies i think what labor has done we do we just did two deals in california with organized labor um... the building and Trades union in Mm -hmm. los angeles and the hotel unite here in los angeles as well both of those deals were hard negotiated but they were deals that made sense for the workers, gave them good wages, good benefits, and also gave us a good, reliable, professional workforce. And so there's a compromise between the two. And you get what you pay for in this country. And so if you want good products, you want good workers, you want people who are (laughs) gonna be committed to you, Mm -hmm. then you've gotta pay them. And so we operate from the perspective that The margins in these deals, maybe some of the other sectors of it, such as interest rates, for example, ought to be cut. So, I mean, we've been able to work with unions, and we do this around the country, um, in New York City as well. Um, And it's all about a fair balance. And I think ultimately the unions, while they're being much more active... They are focused on the viability of a business as well, as you just heard from uh, the union president. We just heard from the Teamsters.
2: Right. Um, Sort of switching gears, I'm just wondering what your outlook in general is for the economy from where you sit.
9: I think that we're going to have um some tougher times i think inflation has been driven as much by the free money that the government gave out to all of our citizens uh during COVID to protect the economy and the and the impact of that we saw with all of these rising costs and expenses Um, i think real estate's going to slow down it should i mean what kind of world can we live in where home prices um double in three years so that just isn't sustainable so i think It'll slow. Things will slow down. But I don't think we'll have this crash. I think it'll be a recession, a softer one. I think commercial office buildings are in deep, deep trouble and have been for a while, especially those concentrated in markets like New York City. Mm -hmm. That'll be where more of the pain is, I think. I think the real estate industry overall um, will kind of have a clearing out, but um, will recover. And some markets will do a lot better than others.
2: And lastly, which market are you the most excited about in terms of opportunities right now?
9: I'm most excited about New York City. Oh. Um, I I think that people are running out. All the development. Many of my friends and colleagues have moved to Florida and other places. (laughs) And so there's less competition. And I think uh, there'll be um, great opportunities here. And I believe that New York City, as I said earlier, will be the continue to be the financial capital of the world and it's attracting an entirely new generation of people so i'm really excited about new york
2: as a new yorker i'm happy to hear that don it's always (laughs) good to see you thank you thank you don peebles coming up meta chipotle and mastercard are on deck with results we've got the action the story and the trade on all three next in earnings exchange Welcome back to the exchange. Let's turn now to the other big market driver earnings. We've got the action, the story, and the trade on three key consumer names set to report, starting off with Meta. Shares um, are ripping higher this year, up nearly 150%, after yet another disappointing report from Snap yesterday. The company basically saying it's unable to gauge future advertising demand. The street will be looking closely for Meta's ad metrics, updates on monetization within threads and reels, and any advances on AI in the metaverse will also be in focus. Jeff Kilberg has a trade today. He's KKM financial founder and CEO and a CNBC contributor. Um, Jeff, you know, in the after-hours session on the back of Alphabet, we saw Meta get a nice pop. It faded today. What's the setup here?
10: Well, it's interesting, Melissa. I think you're absolutely right. There's two narratives right now for traders and money managers going into this after the bell earnings of Meta. And the fact of the matter is that Google, we did see those ads pop. But when we look at Microsoft, they really peeled back the onion and what the heart of all tech moving in 2023 is. It's artificial intelligence. And what actually Microsoft said is a little disturbing. That's why you're seeing Microsoft down 5% today due to the fact that it's going to cost this AI euphoria. It's going to cost something. So that capital expenditure that they laid out is a very different narrative. But I think when you look at Meta, I want to be a buy here. I actually still own it, but if you have apprehension here, because this is the second best leader of the Nasdaq 100 year to date, like you said, up 145%. I think you can look at some type of option overlay, or if you just want to sell a call here. I looked at the 295, basically the -the at-the-money call. You can collect about $14 most, and that's going out to August 18th on expiration. But to kind of put a bow on the box here for Meta, I think you really have to realize that this is not overbought. And at the end of the day, we're going to have to see if they can hit this because it's price to perfection, like some people are saying. But I do believe in the Zuckerberg. I think you remember I bought this IPO at $38 a long, long time ago. So I am a believer in the hoodie. But you have to trade around this name.
2: All right. Let's move on to Chipotle. The fast casual chain up 50 percent this year, hitting an all-time high last week as the company continues to maintain pricing power. Analysts listening for menu price hikes, any labor and commodity issues and improvements in traffic cha- trends. You're a seller, though, Jeff. Why?
10: Well, are you familiar with their barbacoa, their flavor of meat? It's just a little too spicy for me, Melissa. And I think that's what's happening here. If you look at just the dramatic move higher in the stock from its IPO, Right, it's up over 4,000%. But I think again, when you talk about, you know, there's potential uh, a stock split, and that's always a unique reaction. But I think when you talked about the projected revenue of 2.53 billion, that's a 14% year-over-year growth. So again, I want to use options to protect it. I want to sell the at-the-money, call it the 2090 strike, and I think you can collect about 84 dollars. But again, when you talk about implied volatility going into this earnings at 37.5%, I think you do see a lot of momentum in the stock still above the 50-day moving average. So I am cautious here, but if you don't own this stock, I don't see how you buy it here, Melissa, after... After being 50% year to date.
2: All right, we do have a quick programming note. Chipotle CEO Brian Nickel will join Jim Kramer on bad money tonight after the results cross. And let's end here on MasterCard. Shares are up 15% this year, hit an all time high on Monday on the heels of Amex and Visa's strong consumer spending numbers. Investors hoping MasterCard will report the same. UBS also noting MasterCard should benefit from cross border payments as travel remains strong, but Forex wins, headwinds could also ramp higher. Uh, Jeff, you like MasterCard?
10: I do like MasterCard. I actually own Visa. I do not own MasterCard, but I'm thinking of implementing it. I think you hit the nail on the head, Melissa. When you talk about those cross-border revenues, they're just talking about international fees, which are much more lucrative. So if it does stay in the wake of Visa, you are going to see those international fees come into play. But I think with a 4p ratio of 33 times versus Visa just at 27 times, it looks a little more expensive. But pick your metric, Melissa. If it's a one-year, year-to-date, three-year, five-year, we have seen MasterCard, which is 30% smaller than Visa Outperform. So I think there's an opportunity here at this earnings to buy it.
2: All right, Jeff, thank you. Jeff Kilberg, KKM, thank still you, ahead. Lisa. The Fed's rapid rate hikes have already helped push interest rates on credit cards to record highs and with Powell widely expected to strike a hawkish tone yet again, we'll get a look at just how high rates on cards, mortgages and more could go. That's next. We're less than 15 minutes away from the Fed's rate decision, where a 25 basis point hike is likely expected. Another hike could have a big impact on Americans' wallets. So let's take a look at where some key rates currently sit, according to data from Bankrate. The average APR on a credit card still sitting above 20 percent. That's a record high enforcing consumers to carry higher balances for longer. Used car loan rates nearing 8 percent, with subprime auto delinquencies becoming worse now than during the Great Recession. While the 30-year fix is now just below 7 percent, the rapid Rapid rise there has reduced buyers' purchasing power by more than 30 percent. Joining us now to discuss this is Ted Rossman, the bank rate senior industry analyst. Uh, Ted, great to have you with us. We all know that all these rates are going higher, will continue to go higher um, with, with more interest rate hikes. What are you seeing, though, in terms of any potential cracks in the consumer?
11: Subprime auto delinquencies are the biggest area of worry. And I think that's even more of a rising price story than a rising rate story, just because we know what's happened with car prices. Mm-hmm. I mean, the average new car price is pushing $50,000. A lot of people are having a hard time swinging those payments, especially those with lower credit scores. Credit card delinquencies are basically back to pre-pandemic levels, but that's pretty low historically speaking.
2: Yeah, HELOCs are another area. Of course, it adjusts uh, with every adjustment in in the interest rates. And so I'm wondering how how much is there out there at this point in the cycle? Because I would imagine that when rates were close to zero, people took out bigger mortgages and just Got cash out.
11: Yeah, I think the main point about HELOCs is mm-hmm. that this used to be a low-cost form of borrowing. Mm-hmm. I mean, as recently as early last year, we were talking around four percent on average. And now we're north of eight and a half. So, you know, all of a sudden that's really catching up to people. And I think that's a big point about the Fed's rate hikes, the cumulative effect month after month of high inflation, higher rates, that takes a toll, especially on variable rate
2: debt like credit cards and HELOCs. Right, and so give us an example because you, you have the example of the notes um, of the average balance according to TransUnion. The average credit card balance is $5,733. And talking about cumulative effects, you may be able to pay out that 20% on that for one month, for two months, but imagine this going for a year, forever, however long higher for longer means. If you
11: make minimum payments in that scenario you outlined at the average rate, which is about 20.5%, you'll be in debt for 17 years and you'll pay about $8,300 just in interest. So that's that cumulative effect. We see more people carrying credit card debt and for longer periods of time. 60% of people with credit card debt have had it at least a year. It becomes a very persistent debt cycle, unfortunately.
2: Did you say $8,300 in interest on the $5,700
11: Yep, yeah, just in Balance. interest. So you add yeah. in
2: the principal, and yeah, we're talking like fourteen thousand total. That's a hefty price for something for five thousand dollars <laughs> of debt. Um, this, what concerns you the most about the consumer at this point? They, you know, unemployment still three point six percent, so historically low. Still, they've got the jobs. They've got wage increases as well. Should we be really worried about this right now?
11: Right now, I think things are better than we would have expected. The job market, though, can be a lagging indicator rather than a leading one. So I think that's something that we worry about just in the sense of, hey, there's only one way that unemployment can go from here. I mean, it has to go up. Mm -hmm. A lot of the forecasts are pretty benign. You know, maybe it goes to four or four and a half, not to minimize those job losses, but that's pretty small in the grand scheme of things. It wasn't too long ago, you know, we saw double-digit unemployment during COVID. We saw double digits um, back during the Great Recession. We're a far cry from that. I think that's what's propping up the consumer now, the strong job market.
2: How does buy now, pay later factor into all of this?
11: That's such an interesting sector because it's cutting into credit cards a little bit. But that industry is under its own pressure just when you talk about the rapid rise in interest rates. I mean, this is a business that's really been predicated on low rates. Mm-hmm. So, you know, right now, I think the consumer demand is there. I think from an investor standpoint,
2: the bloom is off the
11: rose a little bit. Yeah. Um, but credit cards are still dominant.
2: All right, Ted, thanks for coming by. I appreciate it. Ted Rossman, bankrate.com. And that does it for us here at The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
8: Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. Excellent, give it to you! How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, <laughs> that's our legacy. Ready to be a part of it? Next, Go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric
9: CDX Type S. Give Order now at Acura.com.